0: This morning, we're in Ezekiel, chapter 2, verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 8. And I've called this the call to ministry, and it's the purpose of our calling. So, we've started the book of Ezekiel, in our third week now. And what we do first, we've started doing this in recent months, is we start the service with a memory verse. So, our memory verse for the book of Ezekiel Is Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. So nice big voices. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this is prophetic of the new covenant, which we are partakers of now. The heart of stone is the old heart. The heart that doesn't respond to God refuses to obey him. And the heart of flesh is the heart that wants to obey him. It's a soft, repentant heart. And God, in verse 27, calls us to walk in his statutes. not us trying, but God doing that work in and through us. And it's a promise, you will keep my judgments and do them. So last week, just to quickly revise what we did last week, last week was called the call to ministry, counting the cost. Remember, Ezekiel has been called to ministry. He was a priest and he's been called to become a prophet, a prophet to the nation of Israel. And so the five main points we covered last week are, we must remember that God's plans are always what is best for us, even if they are not easy or comfortable and they cause us temporary pain. If you're on the boat in a storm, don't try and jump off. Stay on the boat right out the storm and we'll reach our destination stronger and closer to the Lord. Secondly, God's calling to serve him will involve great sacrifice. We will never experience the new life until we're willing to let go of the old life and that is our sinful pleasures and desires. Thirdly, if we want to obey God consistently, we must first Seek him through his word with our whole heart. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot with God. James says we're unstable if we're like that, and we're going to be struggling with sin and with our walk with the Lord. And Romans 7 summarizes it nicely. He says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. <laughs> so have to seek him with our whole heart if we want to be able to consistently obey him. Fourthly, God's commands are also his promises. Where God guides, God provides, a famous Chuck Smith quote. God will never command us to do anything without also giving us the power to obey his command. And lastly, true humility results only when we see ourselves as God sees us as being sinful and weak. Remember our prideful attitude We want to see ourselves as being strong and self-sufficient and in need of nothing. So this week, the call to ministry, the purpose of our calling. Why did God call Ezekiel? And this is great because, as we spoke about last week briefly, you and I are also called to ministry. Each of us has our own particular ministry, whatever it might be for us individually. We need to be ready to step into that ministry, to step into that role that God has for us in our Christian walk so we can be effective. So how do we do that? And what's the purpose of it? So let's read Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, through to chapter 2, verse 10. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. Remember, this is Ezekiel that God is speaking to as part of his vision. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impotent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Thy briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. I'll just read a little bit more, the context. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he calls me to eat that scroll. And he goes on about the scroll which is next week. So, the purpose of Ezekiel's calling, what's his calling? It's to speak God's words to the stubborn and rebellious house of Israel. So I just read those two verses, verses three and four. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to that children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impotent, and stubborn children i'm sending you to them and you shall say to them thus says the lord god so let's go with the first part there i am sending you to the children of israel i am sending you to them and you shall say to them so he's speaking to all the israelites from the captivity from the assyrians you know years before this the captivity from the Babylonians and the people still left in the land of Judah. And I am sending you, this is his calling, I am sending you as a prophet. And as a quote here, prophets function primarily as messengers of God. And the critical issue in the conflict between true and false prophets was which persons had actually been commissioned by Yahweh. And the most serious charge that could be leveled against a true prophet was, Yahweh has not sent you. And that's exactly what they said about Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There's this competition between the true prophets and the false prophets. The false prophets are always trying to discredit the true prophets. Now, this hasn't changed even today. The Bible has a lot to say about false prophets in the Old and New Testaments. And Jeremiah 23, God gives us some details about the effect of false prophets. And these are some of the effects. Just a quick summary of Jeremiah 23. False prophets keep people from being saved. They stunt the growth of true believers, especially new Christians. They cause sin to abound in the church, or the nation in this case, by discouraging repentance, and they will bring judgment upon themselves and their followers. As Jesus said in the New Testament, let them alone. They are blind leaders leading the blind. So during Ezekiel's lifetime, tens of thousands would perish because of the message of false hope. So last week we talked about these false prophets. They were saying when this second wave of captivity happened, when King Nebuchadnezzar came down and took another 10,000 captives back into Babylon. Some of these false prophets, or most of them, were saying, hey, guess what? Within two years, we're all going back. Don't stress. We've got the temple. Everything's fine. We're still offering sacrifices. But their hearts weren't right. They were still worshipping idols. They had no heart to serve God whatsoever. They are just going through the motions, going through the motions. And they were thinking, we can do what we want. We go to church. We've got the temple. Who cares? And so they were saying, well, oh, yeah, within two years, everything's going to be good but he wasn't good. And all those people who believe that lie, most of them got killed. So false prophecy has consequences. Verses 3 and 4, it says, To a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impotent and stubborn children. Now, who did God send Ezekiel to speak to? What were they like? Rebellious? stubborn, impotent. And we're going to go through what that means now. So God is describing his own special people. This is pretty interesting. Eh? God is describing his own special people. He describes them as a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. So their, their nature was rebellious. And it's even worse because their rebellion was against God, who had done so much for them. And it says, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. So the nation of Israel had rebelled from the time that God created it to this very day. So for the entire existence, they had been traitors and rebels against God. Now what does it mean by impotent children? Well, literally stiff-faced or harder-faced. They were completely selfish, obstinate, only doing what they wanted to do. They're not willing to bend, obey, or comply with what God asked them to do. And so basically it's like this they have a shameless attitude. They don't care if they're doing the wrong thing. And like in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, it's the verse that talks about the woman caught in adultery. You know, she wipes her hands and says, What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know. Shameless, impudent. And then stubborn children, this means hard-hearted they were uncaring, ungrateful, unkind. A bit like an insubordinate teenager who refuses to obey their parents. It's the stubborn, unyielding will that refuses, point blank, to give way even when found guilty. They just refuse to repent. They refuse to admit that what they're doing is wrong. This is the state of the children of Israel at this time, of the majority of the population. They didn't care, they didn't appreciate everything that God had done to them and for them. And a rebellious nation, and that's literally rebellious nations, so in the plural, and there's a word in the Hebrew, goyim, and it refers to the heathen nations. God uses it with the heathen nations. He says, go speak to the nations, he says to some of his prophets. Guess what? God is calling Israel a heathen nation. He's referring to Israel as a heathen nation. Basically, he's saying there's no difference between you, even though you've got the temple and you're offering sacrifices and things like that. He's saying there's no difference between you and these other nations. So a slap in the face for the nation of Israel that prided themselves on being oh, the people of God, you know. They had this thing that they were better than all the other nations because they had the temple and they were offering sacrifices. and they had the word of God. But God saw them as heathen or as Gentile because their hearts weren't right. And So the important point here is you can't just add religion to your life and think that God will accept you. There has to be a heart change and this negative description of the children of Israel continues the whole book of Ezekiel, and so Ezekiel he's got a hard job ahead of him. In verse four it says, "You shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. Now, what was Ezekiel sent to say? His own words or God's words God's words, yeah, thus says the Lord, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, so we speak God's words not. Our words. It's not about what Ezekiel liked or didn't like. It was about him being God's messenger. And it's the same for every pastor and teacher and every Christian who shares their faith today. We share what the Bible says, not what we think. In verse 5, it says, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. So, A rebellious house. Literally, a house of rebellion. So, a nice way to refer to your own people, you are not the house of Israel, you are the house of rebellion. Remember the word Israel means governed by God. So, how many times? Over a dozen times in the book of Ezekiel, God calls them the house of rebellion. They're characterized by rebellion against God. So, the principle here, is that the greater the revelation and responsibility given to us, then the further we can fall, the greater the extent of our disobedience and rebellion against God is. We become more accountable to God. And that's why the judgment upon the nation of Israel was so severe, because they were the people of God. They had this knowledge, they had the resources to obey, but they chose not to follow, not to trust God. In verse 5 it says, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. So, does it matter if we talk to someone and they don't listen? No. But what does matter is that we talk to the person. Okay? It's God's responsibility for the result. It's our responsibility to be used. So that takes a big burden off our shoulders The important thing to understand here is that we are only responsible for sharing the message and not how the message is received. Okay, so don't fear if people are going to laugh at you or not believe or whatever. You be faithful to speak. You are now free. As Paul said, I am innocent of the blood of all men. He's shared the gospel with all men. Clark says, by this they shall be assured of two things that God in his mercy had given them due warning, and two, that they themselves were inexcusable for not taking it. So as we share the gospel, as we share the word with people around us, one, we've given them due warning, there's judgment coming, their sin is separating them from God, and two, they know that they themselves are inexcusable if they refuse to listen. If we do share the gospel, the full gospel, including sin and judgment and righteousness, then all we need to be concerned about is that we are faithful to share and teach. That's it. And when we stand before God, we will not be ashamed, because we have been faithful to do what God has called us to do. So, application here. Revelation means responsibility. I mean, Wouldn't you love to have this vision? Wouldn't you love to be Ezekiel and have this vision and go, wow, you know, and you write it in your diary and then you go on with your life? No. Once God gives you something, you've got to do something with it, you see? So Son of Man, verses 3 and 4, I am sending you to the children of Israel, I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. So. After the vision comes the commission. The Lord gives him a commission. So if God has given you insights into his character or understanding of his word, there comes with it a certain responsibility to share it. For to whom much is given, much is required. And that was from John Corson. And the quote there was Luke twelve forty-eight. Now there's some other scriptures here. Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And there's our motive. God has given to us. We have been given this great gift of eternal life. Freely give. The New Living Translation says, Give as freely as you have received. I like the way it says that. Give as freely as you have received. God has given to us freely? Did anyone have to pay for their salvation? Did anyone have to do anything to be saved? Of course not. So, we received it freely, we give it freely. So we come to church to become equipped by growing in our knowledge of God through the Word of God. Once equipped, we then have a responsibility, and obligation, to use what we have learned to help others to come to know God and grow in their relationship with God. So I'm going to use the example of a fireman. They go through this rigorous training where they learn to fight fires and save lives. And once qualified, they're expected to use the knowledge and skills they have acquired to fight fires and to save lives. Now what happens if they don't? What's that called? Negligence, yes. For them not to do what they know is right, to do is selfishness, it's wrong. If they have in their possession the ability and the resources to save someone's life, but choose not to do so, then it's wrong and they will be held to account. So like the apostles, we too have freely received. Now it's our turn to responsibly give. It's our responsibility to give. Luke 12.48 Jesus says, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. When we hear the words of eternal life, we hear the gospel, we hear all this truth, and we go, oh man, that makes me feel good, that's fantastic, You know, I know all this stuff. But guess what? Now you're responsible to tell other people. Our responsibility is greater than that of the firemen. We're not just talking about physical death, we're talking about eternal death. Eternity in the lake of fire. Paul describes our roles as ambassadors. Remember, we're comparing Ezekiel's calling as a prophet to tell people the words of God with our calling as ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen 17-21 This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through who? Us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is our message, you see. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin or to be sin for us so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And then the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew twenty eight eighteen 18-20, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now what was God's promise to Ezekiel? I'm going to be with you, yeah? This vision was God's promise, God's showing Ezekiel that he is all-powerful. He has all-authority. And that's what Jesus says in the Great Commission. I have been given all-authority, therefore go. It's the same thing as what happened with Ezekiel. Now we move on to verses 6 through 8, and I'll call this, Don't be afraid. Speak boldly, no matter what happens. And you, son of man... Do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, or dismayed by their looks. Though they are a rebellious house, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. So it says, Do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. So, God warned Ezekiel that, guess what, many would reject his message. Many would reject his message and their rejection would hurt. It would sting like briars, like thorns, and like scorpions. Yet it should not drive the prophet to fear and despair. That was David Guzik. So, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they were all given a depressing call. It's not an easy life being a Christian. They were needed in a desperate situation and they had to be prepared for a large measure of rejection and even threats on their life. That was from right. So what I want to do is compare Ezekiel's day to our day. All right. Back in the days of Ezekiel, in the, the dark days when the children of Israel were in total rebellion against God. It's much the same as it is today, living in the last days. For example, Second Timothy 3 verses 2-5, to it says, People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You know, I was comparing that compared to what it is in the Old Testament at the time when Ezekiel was prophesying. Basically the same. We have the same struggles, the same difficulties that Ezekiel has. We have the same calling. We're not prophets. We're not there to predict the future, but we are there to present the words of God to the people. That's our calling. We're ambassadors for Christ. So, because of the condition of the world we live in, we must expect that there will be many who reject the message that God gives us. God promised Ezekiel that very few people would listen to or receive his message. But again, I come back to this point, It is important. That we are faithful to share the message. 1 Corinthians four two. Paul says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now we are stewards of the word of God. God has put his word in our heart and we are to share it. Now I've got a quote from David Guzik. Also remember that this difficult call was easier for Ezekiel to embrace because it came from a genuinely awesome encounter with God. Because he was so absolutely convinced of the power, majesty, and glory of God, it gave him strength and courage to stand against the stinging rejection of men. So again, it's all about perspective. This is reminding us of our overarching theme here. If God is big and man is small, then we won't be scared. Do I serve a big God or a small God? Do I need a greater understanding of who God is? And in verse six, it says, "Do not be afraid, nor be afraid, do not be afraid." So, why does God say this three times? Because it's our human tendency to to be afraid. Three times God says to Ezekiel, "Do not be afraid." Ezekiel's seen the vision. Does it mean that Ezekiel is inoculated like? vaccinated from fear of course not there's no vaccination against fear all right we need to continue to draw near to the lord and then we will find our confidence and our security in him so verse 6 it also says do not be dismayed by their looks the verb dismayed is a strong word it means to be shattered filled with terror disheartened and broken down with fear So these people, their response is going to be so strong sometimes, it's going to make us feel disheartened, broken down with fear, shattered, terrified. But God says, don't be. Don't be. He says, no. You stand strong. Don't let them have that effect on you. You stand strong. That's how we're going to want to feel, but fight those feelings. And verse 7, whether they hear or whether they refuse... Again, it's their responsibility to listen. It's our responsibility to speak. Now, there's only two times that God expects us to share the word. Two main seasons. There's in season and out of season. <laughs> okay. Paul exhorted Timothy. He was to preach the word in season and out of season. 2 Timothy 4 2, which means all the time. And it's not just when people like us or when we feel like it. A quote from David Guzik, This tells us when the pastor should be ready to preach the word. He should be ready always. He should preach it when it is easy, and preach it when it is hard. He should preach it when the fruit is evident, and preach it when the fruit seems invisible. He should just preach it. And a story. There was once a Church of England clergyman who was gloriously saved, When Jesus changed his life, he started preaching the gospel to his whole parish, and they all got saved. Then he started preaching in neighboring parishes, and the clergymen of those parishes were offended. They asked the bishop to make the man stop. When the bishop confronted him, he said, I hear you are always preaching, and you don't seem to be doing anything else. The changed man answered, Well, bishop, I only preach during two seasons of the year. The bishop replied, What the bishop said, I'm glad to know that. What seasons are they? He replied, in season and out of season. (laughs) So in other words, I'm not stopping. So now we come to another application, the fear of men. So verse 6, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. So basically, as we've been learning the last couple of weeks, having the fear of man means we don't. Fear or respect God enough. And this is a clear revelation or observation that our understanding of who God is is far too small. And a bit of logic here if we serve a small God, then men will seem big to us, and so we will be scared of people. If we serve a big God, then men will seem small to us, and so we will not be scared or intimidated by people. So, I'll say that again, if we serve a small God, then men will seem big to us, and so we will be scared of people. If we serve a big God, then men will seem small to us, and so we will not be scared or intimidated by people. How much we fear man is a clear and true indicator or measure of how much we do or don't fear God, just like a thermometer measures temperature. And also how much we fear God is also a measure of how much we are close to God. So another logic statement. Consider this. As I draw near to God with my whole heart, I see God as bigger and more powerful, and therefore I have less fear of man. As I pull away from God, God becomes distant and smaller, in my perspective, and I fear man. So Paul understands the struggle it is to fear man and therefore be ashamed of the gospel. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 and 9, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. So how do we avoid being ashamed of the gospel? Where does his strength come from? Well, I've got an illustration for you that's going to hopefully help you to understand what Jesus said or what Jesus meant with some of his final words to the disciples. He says, I am with you always. So in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean? Why is that such a a comforting statement? Well, this is a New Testament version of what we are reading in Ezekiel, in chapter 1, a few weeks ago, the vision. God revealed himself to Ezekiel as the God who has all authority over all the earth. He's the great God, the big God, the only God. And then he tells Ezekiel numerous times, do not be afraid of them. I've got a scene from a movie in my head, and I'll try and describe it to you. There's a Narnia movie called Prince Caspian. And in this movie, there's an army. And this army is wanting to cross this bridge. They're armed to the teeth with spears and swords and battle axes and clubs and all those things. And there's big wooden bridge, big wide wooden bridge. And the horses are there and they're they're rearing up and, you know, on the other side of the bridge is a little girl. And all she's got is a little dagger. And so what you see first in the movie is this little girl. The horses are rearing and they're about to charge. And this little girl just stands there, holds up the dagger and smiles. And you're thinking she's going to get wiped out. She's going to get crushed by these horses. And then the camera shifts, and standing next to her is Aslan. I don't know if you've seen Narnia before, but in the Narnia series, this allegory by C.S. Lewis, Aslan is the king. He's the creator king who died for his creation as a payment for the sins, and he has authority over all of his creation. So as these horses start to run, Aslan roars, <laughs> and the scene changes from one of short defeat to an easy victory the invading army lays down their arms in fear of the mighty aslan who demonstrates his complete authority and total power over all creation so a little girl with a tiny dagger could confidently stand up to an entire army simply because god was with her and that's a perfect allegory so do we really believe that god is with us like he promised to be in matthew 28:20 do we act like god is with us Another example, think about David when he fought Goliath. Do you think David thought that God was with him? i read a bit from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17, 45-47. David replied to the Philistine. So he's run down the hill. He's got his sling. And he says, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you. I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. So David knew what it was, didn't he? This is the Lord's battle. It's not mine. Jesus is the one who sent us. It's Jesus who wants to see people saved. He's using us, but it's his battle. We're just his servants. He's the king. So if we really believe that the God we serve is big, awesome, mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, and we trust his promise to be with us and protect us, then... Like David, we will not be afraid of any Goliath. In any situation, we would say like David, this is the Lord's battle. Not our battle, it's the Lord's battle. We will not be scared or intimidated by what others may think about us, what they may say to us, or what they might do to us. And I just want to repeat, this is really important for our our spiritual walk with God, a day-by-day walk with God. We will only know that God is big if we single-heartedly or wholeheartedly seek him through his word and allow God to reveal himself to us. And I think that David is one of the best examples of someone seeking God with their whole heart. And as you go through the life of David in the scriptures, most of the time when he was doing that, when he was seeking God, he was completely fearless. So, an encouragement to you guys to be committed to daily seeking God through his word so you can have victory over your fears. Again, it's only when we choose to seek God with our whole heart that we will have the confidence to obey God's go, Matthew 20, 18, and we will find without fail that God's promise is true. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, application, which is not directly linked to our passage, but it's important too, and it fits. Overcoming the fear of our sinful nature. Overcoming sin. In Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. And verse 9, it says this, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace, that is his help, strength, power and favor through Christ Jesus. So it's really important we get this. God saved us and called us to live a holy life. Not because we deserve it, but because it's his plan from the beginning of time. And the reason is, he is to show us, to demonstrate to us his grace, his help, his strength, his power, his favor through Christ Jesus. So like David and Goliath, our sin nature can seem too big to overcome. And we can give in to it if we serve a small God it's so easy to forget who God is and think of our trials and temptations as being too big for us. We feel or believe that we are not able to resist or endure the temptations. However, we must remember that our sin nature was defeated at the cross, as Paul said, God wants to show us His grace, His help, strength, power, and favor through Jesus Christ. so our living a holy life is the evidence of god's grace his help his strength his power his favor in our lives so when we continue to seek god we will find him and when we continue to ask god we will receive so here are some promises that you can ask and seek and find romans 6 6 to 11 we know what does it say do we think No, it says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. These are facts. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. Verse 9 is important. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. Our victory over sin is directly linked to the resurrection. When Jesus died, the sin nature died. When he rose again, we were given new life. So, there's a comparison here. right? Do you see how seeing Jesus as bigger than our sin is the key to overcoming our sin? We are sure that sin has lost its power in our lives and that we have been set free from sin because Christ was raised from the dead and he would never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Sin no longer has any power over us. That's the facts. So, moving on to verse 8. I've called this the solution to a rebellious heart. Submission to the word of God and making it a part of you. It's a good way to finish. It says, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. So remember this is a scroll with all the words on it. This represents the word of God. God is asking him to eat the word of God. So verse 8 it says, Hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. So the house of Israel, the house of rebellion, (laughs) they forgot, neglected, refused, rebelled against, disobeyed, and sometimes actually cut up and burned the word of God. One of the kings actually did that. Their hearts were so hard and proud. But for Ezekiel to be used by God, he must be different. He must have a humble heart. His heart must be soft and tender and willing to hear the words of God and surrender and submit to them, walking in obedience to them. He must be willing to receive correction and change, as we've learnt about in James chapter 4, 7 to 10. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. So the question is, and this is relevant for all of us, Why do we so often struggle with reading the Word of God? Why do we so often choose to put our fingers in our ears and block our spiritual ears? You know, choosing to rebel against God's simple command, hear what I say to you. Well, I thought about it. I think the answer is, because we don't like what it says. (laughs) We don't want to read it because we don't like what it says. If we love what it said, we'll read it more. But because the word of God proclaims death to our sinful nature, death to our own desires and selfish ambitions, and with great clarity reveals our utter depravity, deceitfulness and wickedness of our heart, Jeremiah 17.9, our appetite for it diminishes very quickly if our hearts are hard and unrepentant, you see. However, if we are poor in spirit, this is based on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, If we are poor in spirit, having a soft, repentant heart, which is seeking God, and we have broken spirits, which are mourning over our sin, and if we are meek, which means we are soft and have a humble and teachable heart, and we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then we will be desiring the word of God like a deer panting in the desert thirst for water, like David described in Psalm 42. So you see the difference? Our appetite for the Word of God depends on the condition of our heart. A couple of logic statements here. So you see, our desire for the Word of God is an accurate measure of just how soft and humble our hearts really are. A hard heart will seek its own way and will not want to submit to God's Word. In contrast, a humble and soft heart will be longing to escape the world and will find its longing and satisfaction only in the Word of God. They're your two choices. So I encourage you, and as I need to do myself, take the time to ask God to search your heart. You can pray through Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God. Try my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Know my anxieties, etc. Be honest with yourself about where you are at with your relationship with God. See where your temperature gauge is for how soft your heart is, how much you're really desiring the Word of God. And where necessary, put James chapter 4, 7 to 10 into practice. Repent. In verse 8 it says, Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. So before Ezekiel can be used by God, and this is coming back to our calling, and ministry that God has given us, before Ezekiel or us can be used by God to share the word of God to change others, those same words must affect or change our hearts or his heart first. They must be eaten and digested. And this is a really good picture or illustration of how we are to take in the word of God. So I'm going to finish with that illustration in a minute. So it's not just that we have some words or a message to share, but rather that we become the message. We become a living witness and example of what we are speaking and instructing others to do and be. So as I was explaining before, This, open your mouth and eat what I give you, we're going to read next week, it's a scroll with words written on it. It's the words of God, representing the word of God. And so, God gives Ezekiel the word and tells him to eat it. And it's not just reading it. This means accepting it completely, wholeheartedly, taking it down into the innermost core of our being. It becomes a part of us or more accurately, we become more like it, more like God. And this is the transforming power of the Word of God. Romans 12.2 Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It's interesting. John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, exactly the same thing. In a vision, because this is not literal, okay, this is in a vision that Ezekiel is doing this. And the same with John the book of Revelation. He eats the scroll with the words of judgment on them. And so, just like with Ezekiel, John had to first eat and digest the word of God before he was able to properly share the word of God. And that's the same for us today. So the road to blessing, obedience, and being used by God is always through submitting to and eating the word of God. So consider what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. That's how we can be if we have a soft and repentant heart. That's how the word of God can become the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. And we eat his words and become a part of us. Job 23.12 I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food. And I like that phrase that you might have heard before. No read, no feed. Put your spiritual food ahead of your physical food and that will go a long way to putting things in the right priorities. Psalm 119 verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. So more than money, more important than going to work should be reading the word of God. So I'm going to, as I promised, go through this illustration of eating the word of God, like eating a meal, eating the word of God, and how that should be very similar, how it makes it very effective how we should be ingesting the Word of God. So, eating a meal is a deliberate action. So, just like we deliberately schedule and plan meal times to eat meals each day, so we should deliberately schedule and plan time to read the Word. Two, we have a readiness to receive. Just like we are hungry for our physical food, so we should be hungry for the Word of God. Internal reception. Now, when you eat dinner, Yeah, babies do this. Babies smear it all over themselves. Right? It's supposed to go inside them, yeah. That's where the word's supposed to be, inside. Just like we don't smear our food all over our body, so the word of God must be more than head knowledge. It's got to penetrate the heart. It's got to go down and in. Repetitive chewing. Just like we need to chew our food many times before we can digest it. So, we must reread and meditate or think about what we have read numerous times before we will be taught the proper spiritual understanding by God. It's going to take effort, it's going to take understanding, it's going to take repetition. Complete reception. Just like we need a well balanced diet and to eat everything on our plate to be physically healthy, so we need to read the whole Bible and not just the bits that we like the most. We need to have a well balanced spiritual diet as well, and Paul describes it as the whole counsel of God. Then there is a process of digestion. For the food to be absorbed into the body, it must be broken down into small bits. In the same way, we must learn to break down the Bible into bits, into its parts, understanding each verse and how it all fits together. And that's like inductive Bible study. Breaking it down and seeing how it all fits together. And then necessity. We have to think of reading the word as a necessity We eat physical food because we must. If we don't, we will die. We need to understand that the same is true spiritually. Not reading the word of God will cause us to be spiritually sick and weak. We have to understand the necessity of reading the word. Sweetness. Do we come to the dinner table with a meal and go, Oh, I hate eating. Who does that? Who says? Ah, oh, not another meal time. We go eat again. No, we go. Oh, what's for dinner? You know, it's sweet. So just like we enjoy our physical food and it's a source of pleasure, so will our reading of the Word of God bring us much pleasure? If we have the right attitude, it will be sweet to our soul. And just like the last one here, number nine, strength and nourishment. Just like physical food strengthens our physical body, so the Bible is a spiritual food that strengthens our spirit and gives the strength to overcome sin, to be bold, to evangelize, to endure the trials that God puts us in, to love others, and to be obedient to what God calls us to do. So think about those things, put those into practice, and that'll take you a long way in your relationship with the Lord. Think about reading the Bible as eating food, and use those same principles, and you'll get a lot more from your Bible reading. So, very quick summary of today, what we've done today. The message God has given us is to be given or shared with people. It's a difficult message and it will be rejected by many people. Secondly, revelation means responsibility. Once we are equipped, like the firemen, we have an obligation to share what we know. Even if it's just a little bit, a child can understand the gospel. It's not hard. We should not be afraid because God is with us. He has all authority. He is with us. Like Aslan on the bridge with Lucy, you know. Like David said, the battle is the Lord's when he killed Goliath. Number four, the fear of man is a measure of how close we are to God. The closer we are to God, the bigger God will appear to us and the less we will fear man. Overcoming sin is also a result of us drawing near to God. We will only experience His power and holiness in our lives if we are close to Him. It's not a program, it's not a method, it's a relationship. And number six, our hearts become soft only as we yield or submit to the Word of God. Our desire for the Word of God is an accurate measure of just how soft and humble our hearts really are. And seven, For the word of God to be effective in us, we must eat it like we eat our meals. So let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing verses in Ezekiel. And nothing has changed. The calling is the same. The people are the same. The message is the same. Our hearts are the same. Ezekiel is a man just like us, just like. Elijah. Lord, we all struggle with fear. We all struggle with our sinful nature. I pray that we will obey the command to hear the words that I give you, to eat them, to repent of our sins, to draw near to God because you will draw near to us. So help us, Father, Lord, to put those things into practice. Truly, the sermon has been said, but the sermon has not been done. Lord, as usual, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of meditation, a lot of reflection, a lot of application. So I pray that we can all go from here today and spend time thinking about what you've shown us from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.